Friends, we are indeed in Acts chapter 5, if you want to turn there in your Bible. Uh, This morning, during the gathering time, I met some folks who were not believers, some folks who were believers, some folks who were new to this church, some folks who were new to church, period, had not been in church before. I don't know if that describes any of you this morning, if you fall under one of those categories. If I was just randomly picking topical messages, I would not introduce you to the church by this story in Acts chapter 5 of a couple lying to the Holy Spirit and being struck dead on the spot. But since we preach line by line, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and since the Lord brought you here this morning, I'm going to trust that in his sovereign hand, he has you here to hear this word. And he's going to use it in his way. So I'm going to read it and we will pray to that end. Acts chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it was remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. Let's pray together. Lord God, if you struck dead those who tried to appear more righteous than they are, then none of us would be here this morning. But I pray that we would attend to this passage and I pray you would show us what it means to fear you, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Show us as a church, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the first four chapters of Acts, we had kind of been getting excited about all that God was doing in the church and the fruit he was bearing and the community that was coming together and how they were selling stuff and sharing with each other. And it was just this beautiful thing. And now it looks like a young couple jumps on the bandwagon of property selling generosity. They do it half right and they are struck dead. I mean, what on earth is happening in this passage? No wonder a commentator calls this one of the most unnerving episodes in the whole New Testament. I mean, it really is. And the early church thought so too, because we read twice, once in verse 5 and then in verse 11, that great fear came upon the whole church. 
So we've been building a definition of the church since the beginning of Acts and especially in chapter four. And we said the church is a believing community of great power and great grace. All of that is in the last paragraph. But now it seems like we need to add to that definition that the church is a believing community of great power, great grace, and great fear. That's important, and we're gonna come back to that. But first, I wanna talk about Ananias and Sapphira's sin. Then I wanna talk about God's response. And then I wanna talk about the church's reaction to God. So let's start by this story, Ananias and Sapphira's sin. Now, we just heard what the early church was doing. We heard in chapter four, verse 34 and 35, that church members, they sold property, they took proceeds, they laid it at the apostles' feet. Chapter four, verse 36, Barnabas did the same thing, sold property, took proceeds, laid it at the apostles' feet. It's kind of like a broken record. Very next verse, Ananias and Sapphira, they sell property, and then there's a scratch. They agreed to hold back some of the proceeds and they only brought part of it to lay it at the apostles' feet. And we're thinking to ourselves, wait a minute, why would they do something like this? I mean, did they miss the memo that people were bringing everything to the apostles and laying it at their feet? Was this some kind of mistake that they made? But I don't think any of us are fooled by what is really going on here because I think every single one of us has done something like this within the church. Now, I know that we have people here who are not born-again believers. They don't claim to me. Praise God, glad that you're here. You get to listen as we talk to believers, Christians, those who claim the name of Christ, to ask the question, have you ever tried to appear more spiritual, more righteous, more mature as a Christian than you actually are? Two people in this room have done that. Yes, And if you have done that, then you know exactly what Ananias and Sapphira are up to. You know exactly what they were plotting to do here. I'm speculating here. I don't know this, but the story of Barnabas, I mean, literally is the verse right before this story of this couple. And I don't think it's far-fetched to say that Ananias and Sapphira have been in this community and they've been watching people like Barnabas. Barnabas' real name is Joseph, but Joseph was so beloved, so known by name among the apostles that they gave him a new name, Barnabas, which meant son of encouragement because he was such a breath of fresh air to the church. I mean, how beautiful to be renamed by the church based on just the benefit the believers receive from you. But nobody gave Ananias a nickname. I mean, nobody noticed what he was doing for the church. Nobody saw all all the ways he was trying to be generous or the ways he tried to give encouragement where he could. Nobody saw that in Barnabas, in Ananias. It's just Barnabas this and Barnabas that and Barnabas is doing all these great things and nothing about me and it's all about Barnabas. And when you put those two together, it almost sounds like the story of Cain and Abel where when Abel gives an offering that's regarded by God, Cain has an opportunity to say, wow, praise God, that's awesome. I need to learn from you, Abel. What does it look like to give an offering that God regards? But instead, Cain leaves with murderous rage. And instead of Ananias learning from Barnabas, he leaves with this devious plan. 
And so on this fateful day, Ananias and Sapphira, they get together, they agree on what they're going to do, and they see it as a double benefit. They're going to appear just as righteous as Barnabas, just as righteous as the top givers in the church, but then they're also going to keep some of their money and enjoy the proceeds to themselves. And so this is deviously genius. They're gonna have their cake and eat it too. They're going to look generous in the light and they're going to nurse their sin of greed in the dark. Now, Christian, I would ask you if you ever struggle to appear more righteous than you actually are, but I don't want you to be struck dead. And so instead, I'll ask you, how are you right now trying to put your most sanctified foot forward to bring attention to yourself and myself instead of attention to Christ and what he has done for us? How are we actively doing that in this body? Now, if you're a new believer or new to the church and you don't understand how this game is played and how you can gain a reputation in the church for being a righteous person, I'm a pastor, I've been doing it for a while, and I will give you some tips. These are five ways you can look more righteous than you actually are, okay? Number one, this is easy, drop all the hints of the good things that you're doing for God, right? Just, just pepper conversations. I happen to be, hang on, I gotta go pick somebody up. I'm ministering to this person. I gotta go do this. Pray for me this weekend. I'm sharing the gospel with somebody. Now, all of that is biblical. I mean, Paul asked for prayer, but you and I know when we're asking for prayer and we need prayer and when we're asking for prayer and we need a compliment and there's a difference between the two, but that's an easy way to appear righteous. Number two, this is classic. Make myself the servant and not the peer in any given relationship. Now that sounds confusing, but it's really easy. So if I say I'm hanging out with Bill tonight and my wife says, man, that's awesome, great, I love Bill. And I say, yeah, I know he's struggling with some things and there's a lot going on in his life and I just wanna be there for him, right? All of a sudden, that was a peer relationship in which now I'm the servant serving Bill and I'm there on Bill's behalf, right? Meanwhile, Bill is talking to his wife. I'm hanging out with David tonight, great, I love David. Yeah, he's struggling, he looks exhausted. I just wanna be there for him. We're doing that to each other. Okay, number three, this is an easy one because you don't have to do anything. When someone confesses a sin to you that you yourself are struggling with, don't say anything. And then they walk away thinking they're the only person in the world that struggles with that sin. And wow, what a righteous guy I just talked to. How about number four? White-knuckling obedience in public and let your true self out when you get home. Spouses are like nudging each other. Roommates are elbowing each other. Like try hard in front of other people who can affect your job, your ministry, your life. Try hard to put on the best front. And then when you get home, let the critical spirit out to your wife and to your kids because they're not gonna tell on you. Number five, Let's slip how much all this obedience costs. I'm exhausted. I'm running around. I'm burning the candle at both ends. I'm doing the Lord's work. 
and let people ooh and ah over your kingdom commitment. Any of these resonate with you? One of you? Okay. The rest of you have learned number three to ignore when someone's confessing sin. These are just a few ways to put your most sanctified foot forward, to appear more sanctified without the actual cost of being sanctified. And there's many, many more that we can say. All sarcasm aside, woe to the Christian. Woe to the Christian, myself foremost, who chases the praise of man in public and scorns the pursuit of God in private, who carries the cross of Christ with grunts and groans for all to see and celebrate, but the moment no one is looking, casts it aside. The person in our midst who refuses to cut off the hand that causes them to stumble because they don't want to be seen with a stump and think that they will enter the kingdom of heaven unscathed. Woe to the person who thinks that they can gain the whole world and the whole praise of the church and to keep her very soul. Woe to that counterfeit Christian whose heart Satan fills, whose every deed in the kingdom is just a parody. It's a ruse. It's a cheap imitation. There's no power. There's no grace. It's just filthy rags of spiritless costless, Christless busyness. Woe to that person. When Jesus gave his seven woes to the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23, where he came out and called them blind guides and whitewashed tombs, he summarized the entire thing in his opening sentence when he said they do all their deeds to be seen by others. Woe to us when we do that. What Ananias and Sapphira thought was a double benefit was actually a double bondage. I mean, they thought they were getting the dual benefit of appearing righteous and keeping their money too, but really they just proved themselves to be slaves of both of those things, the praise of man and their own money. The very things that the church was being freed from in Acts chapter four, their counterfeit version was actually being enslaved to the things that the church was celebrating their freedom from, and they had no freedom. That's what Ananias and Sapphira did. Let's think about how God responds. He must have given Peter like a supernatural insight because when Ananias comes, his wife is at home and with all smiles, he dumps this big pile of money in front of Peter. Peter knows instantly that something is up and he says to him in verse three, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep for yourself part of the proceeds? Verse four, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Now, I actually think that Ananias was so enslaved to this horizontal plane of thinking and being enslaved to what other people actually thought about him that he might not have readily realized that God was also in the room. Like if Ananias had gotten one more speaking part before he dropped dead and Peter said to him, you have not lied to men but to God, I think Ananias would have said, what are you talking about? 
I wasn't trying to lie to God. I was trying to lie to you. I was trying to lie to the church. I was trying to lie to Barnabas and the people who would celebrate me. I didn't mean to lie to God. I was just lying to people. And then Peter, he draws back the veil of what is just an everyday transaction. People giving money to the church. We just did that 15 minutes ago and might not have thought that God is here The spirit is here and the devil is here even in this mundane, everyday thing. We don't primp and preen our self-righteousness before each other in a vacuum. This is a very sobering thought. God is here. His Holy Spirit is grieved and Satan rejoices when we give off this air of self-righteousness. But rather than let that poisonous leaven infect the body any further, God elects to strike Ananias dead. Three hours later, his wife comes in. She has no idea. Peter gives her a chance to repent. What did you sell the property for? She lies to him, lies to the spirit. She's struck dead as well. And Ananias and Sapphira join the likes of Ur, Onan, Nadab, Abihu, Achan, Hophni, Phinehas, Uzzah, Nabal, Jeroboam, those in scripture whom God killed in an instant for relentless resistance to his will. Boom. Now Christian, I think it's important that we linger here a little bit as we think about the church's reaction And don't try to hustle past this scene. I mean, this can kind of feel like you're in a household with a dad with an anger problem. And he slams the table and shouts. And then all the family members are expected to just cover up his anger by caring about their business and talking sweetly to each other. And and we'll get past this little embarrassing moment. And we do that in our households with a, a wicked dad with an anger problem. But we don't do that here with God. Don't be embarrassed for him. I mean, don't try to put a positive spin on this thing. Don't skip hard places to preach on. Don't skip past a single scene of self-revelation from God. Psalm 18.10 says, As for God, his way is perfect. My discomfort about God tells me actually more about me than it does about God. God himself, he makes no mistakes. He suffers no regrets. He pines for not a single do-over. His way is perfect. And so as this happens, the church, verse 5, verse 11 responds in fear. A great fear came upon the whole church and upon all outside the church, everybody who heard about these things. It's only the self-righteous that says, good riddance, I'm glad that couple is gone. It's the righteous who respond in fear. Now, when we think about the fear of God, and we're closing with this, it can be difficult to define But fear of God, which is all over scripture, is not on the one end panic or distress. 
like we live in this imminent terror of death. God wants us like wandering around, wondering when he's going to strike. That's not how the Bible describes the fear of the Lord. Nor is it on the other end, nor do we play it down so much that it is simply polite deference. Like if you call him sir and say please and thank you, he's going to stay off your back. I mean, we've got both of those extremes and all of us are dabbling between those extremes, but how do we actually think about a biblical fear of the Lord? It's actually came up in my household the other night where just this past week, we're sitting around the table, we're talking about the gospel, we're actually sharing our testimonies with each other, so our kids are ready for the communicants class testimonies today, and it just led into this like really serious conversation about hell and about eternal judgment, and what a horrifying thing that is, and I hope we talk to our families about the reality of eternal judgment. We had that conversation, we prayed together, we go to bed, we wake up the next morning, And one of my kids is just still feeling the weight of that. And this child comes to me and says, you know, I'm just, I'm kind of scared about all that we talked about yesterday. How do I respond in a way that is true to the fear of the Lord? Do I, number one, say, good, I want you to lose sleep over that. Because it's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Or do I, too, say, oh, sweetie, don't worry about that. I was just, you know, doing my pastor thing, and it's not that big of a deal, and we don't have to dwell there. Or three, do we run as fast as we possibly can to the gospel? 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, for God has not destined us for wrath. Wrath exists is real and it's terrifying, but in Christ that is not what God has destined for us. When we run to his son Jesus, he is our sweet refuge and the wrath of God that should fall on us now falls on his son Jesus and we cling to Jesus ever tighter knowing that he reconciles us to God. It's the gospel that answers that question of God and the fear of him. I want to point to two other verses in Acts that use the word fear and see if this clarifies our understanding of the fear of God. Acts 9.31 says, So the church throughout all Judea and and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit it multiplied. That's Acts 9.31. Whatever the fear of the Lord is, it goes hand in hand with the comfort of the Holy Spirit. Here's another one, Acts 19.17. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and the fear fell upon them, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Whatever the fear of the Lord is, it goes hand in hand with the praise and the worship of Jesus. If that's the kind of fear we're talking about, the wrath of God revealed against man and our understanding of the gospel, a fear that can go hand in hand with the comfort of the Holy Spirit, a fear that can go in hand in hand with extolling Jesus' name, then it is right and fitting for us to see ourselves, church, as a believing community of great power, great grace, and great fear. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, bear in us this good fear and reverence for you. 
You are so holy, apart from us, unlike us. You are to be revered, celebrated, worshiped, and feared. I pray that we are a believing community who feels your grace, feels your power, and feels this true, reverent fear of you. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.